This morning we're picking up right in the middle of Romans chapter 2, a chapter which is all about God's judgment. For the last two weeks we've been in Romans 2 and the Apostle Paul has been explaining that God will judge all people according to their works and that he will judge people fairly, not showing any favoritism or partiality. But Paul has probably taught about God's judgment before. And he knows that people usually have some objections or questions when it comes to the fairness of God's judgment. And so today, we're looking at the first of three excuses that people might raise in response to the fact that God supposedly judges people fairly. That we'll look at the other two the next two weeks, but we're looking at one of the excuses today. And essentially, this excuse or objection boils down to this. Isn't it unfair for God to judge people the same when God didn't give all people the same knowledge about his laws for right and wrong? So, is it not fair? It seems unfair that God would judge people the same if he didn't give all people the same information. And so that's the objection he is primarily speaking to this morning in our sermon text from Romans 2. So I'd encourage you to look in the uh, bulletin or you can open up your Bibles. We're in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, as we address this objection as it comes to God's judgment. So Romans 2, this New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Rome. Let us hear the word of God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Well, Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who warns us of your judgment and also warns us that it will be fair and just and good. And so we pray as people who don't like to hear about judgment and especially that we are liable to that judgment, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. God, I pray that you would help me to faithfully proclaim your word and we pray for the Spirit to go forth in the power of the Word and to accomplish those purposes that Your Word does in us. So give us ears to hear and open our hearts and minds, O God, that we would receive Your Word today, receive it as truth, and we ask You to shape us by it. In Jesus' name, Amen. So looking at our text today, really Paul's big point here in this paragraph, is his main idea is that Though all people know some of the demands of God's law, 
No person obeys what they know well enough to be judged a good person. And so we're going to look at our text today. We're going to first look at why having different amounts of knowledge is not unfair. And then we're going to ask three questions about what all of this means for God's judgment. So the primary objection that Paul is speaking to is this idea, again, that we haven't all received the same thing. And so God's judgment can't be fair. So there it is. We have not all received the same thing. Therefore, God's judgment can't be fair. And this is true. We have not all received the same thing. He's speaking here about the fact that the Jews did indeed receive more information about God's law than the Gentiles did. The Jews received direct divine revelation from God in the form of the law. That God spoke to their forefathers, most notably to Moses on the mountain. And the people of Israel wrote down these revelations of God's law for future generations. They knew what God required of them from this law. And the Gentiles didn't have that. If some non-Jewish person walked around downtown in 1000 BC or even 1 BC and were like, hey, where can I buy a copy of the Old Testament? Where can I get a copy of uh, the Jewish law? They wouldn't be able to get it. It wasn't available. It was the possession of the Jewish people. And so the Jews possessed the law. The Gentiles did not. There was a different amount of information. That part is true. But Paul is saying that doesn't mean that God judges unfairly. This is what he writes in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So Paul is writing that people will be judged according to what they have received. Those who have received the law will be judged as people who knew the law. Those who have not received the law will not be judged by what they've never heard. That would be unfair. And so by explaining how God judges people differently, Paul is showing that having received the law is not itself some guaranteed advantage on the day of God's judgment. Because what matters most is not that we've heard it, but how we've responded to what we've heard. That's what he writes in verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So merely hearing the commands of God does not help someone unless hearing leads to doing. Paul, in this passage, was primarily speaking to Jewish people who had the law of Moses. But I want to apply this principle to us today as well. Because it is possible for people today to hear God's Word and think that hearing God's Word and Knowing God's Word is enough to keep us safe on Judgment Day. Hearing is not enough. A response of some kind is required. Merely knowing that Jesus died to save sinners, well, it's good to know that, but that knowledge doesn't save. You must do more than simply hear the truth 
You must believe the truth. You must trust that Jesus saves you because you are a sinner deserving of God's judgment. Now, this idea gets picked up in the next in the rest of chapter 2 and so we'll be looking at that more over the next few weeks but for today I want I want you to hear that having more information that knowing some truth is not a guaranteed advantage when God judges all people God will judge people according to the knowledge they have received but the question then becomes what knowledge if any Have people received about God's law if they don't have God's law? What about the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people? That brings us to the first question I want to ask today. Do people without God's law know right and wrong? Paul says yes. All people have an innate sense of right and wrong. That's what we read in verse 14. He says this, For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. That's a lot of word law right there. Sorry about that. It's the Bible, you know. People who don't know God's law still do what is right because they innately know some of the right things they should do. And this seems like common sense, I think, to us. That if you look at human history, you will see that certainly all human cultures have not agreed 100%, and some cultures emphasize some things more than others, but most cultures agree on most of the major things that are right and wrong in life. That's what we saw in our Old Testament reading with Abimelech. That Abraham was worried that, man, I'm staying around these pagans. They're just like wife snatchers. They'll just kill you for just about anything. And so he thought they would take his wife. And for some dumb reason, he's like, I'll just say she's my sister. And that didn't work. But notice how Abimelech pleads with God. Like, hey, I wouldn't have done that wrong thing. I know better than that. But he told me she was his sister. I, I thought this was something I could morally do. I acted in ignorance. I am, I am still a man of integrity. I did not do anything wrong. That's a, a pagan king. He didn't know God. He didn't have God's law. And yet he still knew right and wrong. And he expected Abraham to know right and wrong. And so people without God's revealed law in his word still know some measure of right and wrong. But How? How do they know that? Where does this moral awareness come from? Well, Paul gives us an answer in verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So when God created mankind in His image, He created us with a moral sense of right and wrong. We often call this our conscience. It's a kind of internal moral compass that gives us feedback on whether or not we are doing the right thing or the wrong thing. And so we all have this conscience, this moral sense. 
But after Adam and Eve sinned, every part of us was affected by this sin and corrupted by this sin, including our moral compass. And so now our conscience, sadly, is not 100% accurate. But it still can be accurate. It's not like it's so broke it never works. It works a decent amount of the time. And that's what Paul is saying when he says that the law has been written on our hearts, that every person comes hardwired with a moral compass, even if that compass has been corrupted by sin. And so this conscience works in us. It accuses us when we've done something wrong. It gives us that guilty feeling after we've told a lie after we explode in an outburst of anger, after we take something that doesn't belong to us, our conscience accuses us and makes us feel guilty because we know we did something wrong. But our conscience can also excuse us, assuring us, well, you didn't do anything wrong. Those people over there, they're treating you badly. You're innocent. Our conscience can work in either direction, accusing or excusing It doesn't work perfectly, but let me tell you, it is correct far more often than a broken clock. I bet for most of you, your conscience is right more than twice a day. And so we have this innate moral sense, and all people have this innate understanding of morality. And that is why when we look at the world, so many of us look out and we feel like we see a lot of good people in the world that I bet you know plenty of people who do not believe in Jesus and yet they know what is right and they often do what is right. And Paul is saying, I know these people exist because they've got this moral conscience in themselves. But Paul's point is not, look at all the people who do what is right. His point is, this proves all people do wrong. So the second question I want us to ask is, does doing good make someone a good person? See, according to the world's definition of good, yes, if you do some good, that makes you a good person. The world absolutely thinks that people who usually do what they know to be right are good people. But Paul here is writing about God's judgment. And he's trying to show that all people will face God's judgment and that all people will be judged fairly and that nobody can stand before God's fair judgment and be judged a good person by God. And so Paul is trying to show that all people have some understanding of right and wrong. He is trying to prove that all people knowingly do what is wrong. He is showing that even though the Gentiles did not have all of God's law, They had some of it written on their hearts. And what they had written on their hearts, they broke. Certainly not every time, but sometimes. And he's proving that it would be just for God to condemn them according to those works of breaking the law written on their hearts. That nobody has perfectly done what they know to be right. Now, usually when I stand up in front of people and say, hey, there's no such thing as a good person and everyone's done something wrong, there's usually some initial like resistance. Like, well, that's a, you're just kind of like throwing that out at everybody. I'm like, I get that. That's fine. 
And if you still don't believe that all people are guilty before God's judgment for the wrong things they have done, then please go with me to verse 16. Verse 16 says, A day is coming when God will judge the secrets of men. See, most people who would say they are good people imagine this setting. That they will be on trial and that there will be a jury of their peers and that based on all of the evidence that could be provided about our goodness, that they would be able to make a case that I am a pretty good person. But what if every secret of ours was admissible as evidence? What if every thought you have ever had in your life was admitted as evidence in that courtroom? What if every secret sin that you have ever committed was presented publicly in front of a jury of your peers? Would you be as confident in saying that you are a good person? You see, if the secrets of every person who ever lived will be exposed on the day of God's judgment, then we've got no hope of being judged a good person on that day. Not a single person will be able to explain all of their thoughts, words, attitudes, actions, especially those that we only know ourselves and no one else knows. All of us would stand condemned before God on the day He judges our secrets. But that verse 16 that tells us of such a frightening judgment of our secrets says something really, really strange. Hear what Paul writes. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, some people are bothered by the word my, that like, hey, Paul, this isn't your gospel. And, and it seems like what he means is the gospel that I preach. It's not like Paul has ownership over it or it's Paul's good news. It's just what he preaches. The word that is strange to me is gospel. Gospel is a word that means good news. How could it possibly be good news that God is going to judge all of our secrets? That sounds like the worst news in all the world. Not good news. Well, the key to hearing that that could possibly be good news is the last three words of verse 16. By Christ Jesus. The one who will judge our secrets is Jesus. And that should be good news. Think of our New Testament reading in John chapter 4. Jesus was talking to this Samaritan woman who had a shameful past. But to someone who just randomly met her, no one would know about her past. She thought when talking to Jesus, it was a secret past. And then Jesus is like, hey, I know you've been married five times. And you're with someone now who's not your husband. Like, whoa. Uh, okay. He reveals to her that he knows her secrets. But notice how he did it. Jesus didn't reveal her secrets in a court of law. Jesus did not reveal her secrets publicly in order to shame her. He revealed her secrets 
in order to get her to think about the God before whom she would stand on Judgment Day. Jesus shared this knowledge about her sinful secrets not to push her away as unworthy, but to show I knew all of those things and they didn't push me away. I came to you, in fact. He spoke to her knowing all of her sinful secrets, and he still wanted to talk to her about worshiping God, about how he was the Messiah whom God was sending to save the world. So what does this New Testament reading teach us? Well, we learn that Jesus already knows all of our sinful secrets. Nothing is hidden from Jesus' sight. No impure thoughts, no hidden sins, no hypocritical words. He knows it all. And yet, knowing the full depths of our sin, He still willingly gave His life for us. Just think about that for a minute. There's not a single person in this room who knows your sins as well as you yourself do. Not one person here knows how sinful you are more than you do. But Jesus does. And Jesus died for all of those sins. This makes me think of uh, a scene in the World War II movie Saving Private Ryan. came out a while ago, I guess. A group of soldiers are sent to rescue this Private Ryan and return him safely home because his three brothers had died in battle and they didn't want this family to lose all four of their children in war. And so they are tasked to go find Private Ryan and bring him home safely. And things don't go well. These soldiers suffer significant losses on their mission and they openly question one another. Like, is this guy worth it? Like, why are we doing this? We don't know this guy. Why are we giving our lives for him? They're, they don't know if his life is worth it. And then, at the end of the movie, the commanding officer of that group that has led them there is lying there dying, and he looks into the eyes of Private Ryan, and he says to him, Earn this. Earn this. Be deserving of what has happened. I want you to hear that Private Ryan was saved. But it wasn't good news. He was saved and loaded with a burden. A burden that he would struggle to carry. We too can believe in Jesus for salvation and not always hear it as good news. And carry, in a sense, a burden of our secret sins. Thinking to ourselves, well, yeah, the pastor knows that I'm a sinner and that Jesus can forgive me. And yeah, He can forgive me for all the sins that like these other people know. But I've got these other sins. These thoughts. These things in my past that I'm not proud of. And I've never really told anyone and people don't really know. And I'm not sure Jesus can save me from those. And so we almost hold on to them as a burden that we need to earn and make up for. Thinking God is saying to us, earn that. Jesus 
does not say to you, earn it. He says to you, I have earned it for you, knowing all of your sins. Nothing could be further from the truth than Jesus saying to you, earn it. Because He knew all of your sinful secrets ahead of time. He knew exactly who He was dying for. He knew not only what you have done in your life, but what you will do in your life. He knew everything about all the people that He died for, and He still earned all of that salvation for us. And so our duty is not to earn this salvation, but to receive it. To recognize that every single one of our sins, the ones that everyone knows about, the ones that are clearly on display, and the ones that we are fully and totally ashamed of, that He has died for each and every one of those. And that we could never stand before God with all of our secrets exposed. But we can stand knowing that Jesus says, I've got them all. Every sin, no matter how public or secret, is washed clean. Stand in Me on Judgment Day. And that is good news. It is good news that changes us. It changes this burden. And instead of lifting it, it spurs us on. Because when Jesus does wash us clean, He also fills us with the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts. So now we don't just have the law written on our hearts telling us how we have gone wrong. We have the Spirit changing our hearts to be able to do some of what the law says we must do. We are empowered to go and obey for the right reasons. Now, We don't do that perfectly, of course. We fail again and again, but the Spirit slowly over time grows us in holiness so that we more resemble the Jesus who died for us. So that we look more like the One who earned it all for us. And so now our conscience testifies to us, yes, there may be guilt there, but Jesus has washed it away. And any good that is here is certainly His doing, making us new by the Spirit. Let us pray. Lord, we all sit here hearing Your Word. And secrets are by definition something unknown to others. And so each of us sits here this morning with something on our mind about our secret sins. Father, I pray that You would help us to see that there is forgiveness for those sins. That we need not fear them being exposed on Judgment Day if we confess them today to Jesus and trust that He, through His death, has died for them and paid the punishment for them. And so then we know we can stand on Judgment Day perfect in Him. Lord, I pray that You would help us not to feel ungodly guilt on our hearts, but to let any guilt that we feel drive us back to a Savior who washes all our guilt away through His death. May we glorify Him and live for Him each and every day. In Jesus' name, Amen.